Take your Bibles and turn with me, please, to the third chapter of the book of Romans, Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through, actually 1 through 9. We're going to look at one extra verse today. You get a bonus verse this morning from what's in the bulletin. Uh, we come to this passage and we, we're realizing that Paul is building his case. We talked about last week how he's like, like a lawyer building a legal case, building his brief uh, to show forth his, the truth of what he wants us to understand. And, uh, and this is going to be our last sermon for a few weeks in Romans. We're going to break from it uh, and we'll come back uh, in about seven weeks, seven or eight weeks. Uh, we're going to take a break and kind of focus on some, uh, some of the solas of the Reformation and on the, the whole concept of, of what the Reformation has been. And we're going to entitle that series, that series within the series, if you will, as a call to a new Reformation. And I think as it develops, you will see the reason for that choice of title for the, uh, for the series, and we'll follow that along. So we'll be out of Rome, well, actually, to be honest with you, We'll be in Romans a lot when we're looking at the solas and we're looking at the, the concept of Reformation. But we'll come back to this uh, oh, toward the end of, of October when we get back uh, into the book of Romans. Someone asked me one time, it hadn't been anybody in this series, but they asked me, why did Paul, or why does Paul, take so much time in, in the latter part of chapter 1, all of chapter 2, and a major part of chapter 3 to talk about sin? You know, he has this great explosive statement in, in, in Romans 1, 16 and 17 where he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to the Jew first and then to the Greek. And then he said, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, for it is written, The righteous shall live by faith. It sounds like the Apostle Paul just opens up with this, this, he's already described the gospel in verses 1 through, uh, through 7, and, and here he comes with this statement, and it's really the, the, the theme statement of the whole book, and he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And then someone might ask, say, but why does he then depart from the gospel? He spends all this time talking about sin, all this time talking about wrath, all this time talking about unrighteousness rather than, than talking about the righteousness of God. Why is it that Paul doesn't just go from, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, right into the gospel? That's exactly what he does. It's exactly what he does. Some might say in our day and time, because of our feel-good attitudes and really want to just feel better about ourselves, we're not really concerned about what truth is so, many, so much of the time, we might say, but why not begin with the love of God? I mean, Jesus, uh, it states in John 3, John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him might, uh, would not perish but would have everlasting life. Why does Paul not start by something more positive, something more popular, something more upbeat? Why does Paul start with wrath and unrighteousness and idolatry and sin before he ever gets to the good stuff that we think is the good stuff about the gospel? Well, truth of the matter is, Paul recognizes that until we understand the depth of depravity, until we understand the depth of our sin, until a person sees themselves as really under the wrath of God and 
and living in unrighteousness and needing the righteousness of Christ applied to their life because of their sin, because of their idolatry, until a person sees that, they're really not ready to appreciate and love and be grateful for the grace of God and the love of God and the gospel message of God's salvation in Christ. That's true. And, and so Paul spends all this time saying, listen, this is what has happened. The pagan is without excuse. God has shown his attributes in all of his creation. As the psalmist said, the heavens declare the glory of God. And yet the pagan says, I don't want to worship that God. I want to worship my own idols. And the pagan goes off and lives in sensuality and lives in dark sin. And the pagan goes off and exchanges what is right for that which is wrong, what is good for that which is evil. The, the pagan goes off and exchanges God's goodness for the world's darkness. And, and so the religious or the moral person says, yeah, boy, that's the way they are. They are really horrible people. And Paul says, not so fast, my friend, to quote Luke uh, Corso, not, not so fast, my friend. You may be living in your morality, and you may be living with a holier-than-thou attitude, and you may say, well, I'm not as bad as those Gentiles. I'm not as bad as those pagans. Why, I, I try to live morally. I try to live by the golden rule. I try to I try to do what is best that I, as best I can. I try to make my life better. And Paul says, I understand that, but you're in just the same condition as the pagan if you're not in Christ, which you'll get to in the latter part of chapter 3. And the other said, well, I, I'm a Jew. I, I'm very religious. I go through all the religious rituals. I, I've received circumcision. I, I am a part of the chosen people of God. Why, why I, I just have got to be right with God. I might not be, I'm not like the moralist. I'm not like the Greek moralist or the, or the, the Gentile pagan. Why, why, I've got religion. Paul says, yeah, you do. But your religion will not get you anywhere apart from Christ. Period. Your religion is of no value to you for your salvation. And so, as we saw last week, in chapter 3, Paul starts anticipating the argument that's going to come. Well, are you saying that the Jews have no advantage whatsoever? And Paul says, oh, heavens, no. The Jew has every advantage possible. I mean, the Jew has been given the very oracles of God, the very word of God. The Jew has been blessed by God in being called into a covenant relationship with him through Abraham and through all the others as they, they went down through Old Testament history. The Jew has been called into a covenant relationship and given through the prophets and, and the law the word of God that always points to Christ. I, you're going to be amazed when we get to Abraham in Paul's discussion because Paul is make it, going to make it clear that Abraham was not saved by his circumcision. Abraham was not saved by his, by his religion or saved by his, uh, his good works. Abraham was saved because he looked to Christ. He was saved because of Christ. I'll build that case when I get to it, but a lot of people find that to be shocking. A lot of people say, no, it's by the law that they're saved, right? They, they do good. In, no, no, it's by Christ. Let the Old Testament saint is saved just like you are saved today. In Christ. 
So Paul said that you ought to have every advantage because you have the words of God. You have the scriptures. You have the, you have the very oracles of the living God. And, and the, Jew, the, the, the objector might say, but aren't you undermining the covenant? No, I'm not undermining the covenant. I'm saying the covenant is real. The covenant is true. Well, then another one might say, well, as we talked about last week, then, then in your teaching, Paul, nullifying the, the, God's faithfulness. You're saying that God is no longer faithful to those who are in the Jewish community, who are in the, the Jewish covenant. God, God has turned them away because they have not come to faith in Christ. And Paul says, heavens, no, I, I'm, not, I'm not at all saying that God is not faithful. God is very faithful. It is in your unfaithfulness that the covenant, the old covenant, is broken, and, and that there is this separation from the truth of Almighty God that is so vitally important to be understood. Paul says, no, my teaching doesn't undermine the covenant of God. My teaching does not undermine or, or nullify God's faithfulness. So in verses 5 and 6, one might say, well, I, I haven't even read it, have I? I'm getting carried away from last week. Hear the word of the Lord. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles, or the words of God. But what if some were unfaithful? Does their unfaithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Heavens, no. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Psalm 51, 4. Paul quotes, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way, Paul says, by no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why do why, why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, Paul says, their condemnation is just. What then? Are Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And then he's going to say, as it is written, he's going to quote a lot of scripture that we won't get to for seven or eight weeks. But what Paul is saying here is, I want you to see there has to be this case laid for every man's need, no matter whether they're Gentile or Greek or moralist or, or whether they're Jewish. They are all outside of Christ, and, and outside of Christ they are under God's wrath. They're under the wrath of God. So, so Paul goes on, and, and he takes this argument a step further in verses 5 and 6, and we didn't get to this last week. But he said, if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? The objector says, well, well Paul, listen, it impugns God's justice if, if in our sin the righteousness of God is seen more fully and, and, and yet he still judges us even though our sin causes his glory to be seen. How can he judge us? How can he put us under wrath? When our sin really does him, it shows him forth as more glorious. Paul says you're missing the whole point. It's just like later on, the objector will say in another section 
Well, are you saying, Paul, the grace of God is so powerful when sin is present that we are, we're better off just to sin more so that God's grace can abound more? And again, he used that same terminology. Heavens, no. God forbid. No. You're missing the point of the glory of God's grace. And here we'd say, you're missing the truth of God's justice. God must judge the lie. God must judge that which is apart from his truth. I, I, would, I don't like to say that something like this because we say well, God can do everything. But that's something God can't do. Because of his nature, he cannot just excuse sin. Even if it abounds his glory. Even if your sin shows the, the justice of God more fully, he cannot say, well, since your sin is doing that, then I'll just be happy with you for sinning and, and everything's all right. He can't do that. That's the reason the cross was necessary. So Paul says, no, this doesn't impugn God's justice at all. It, it, as a matter of fact, it, it just shows how just he is, and it shows how he is righteous in judging the world, either pagan or moralist or religionist outside of Christ. Because there is none who are righteous. He'll say that later in this chapter. Not one. Nobody lives in a situation of their own righteousness causing their acceptance before God. Let me, let me see if I can illustrate that a little bit. We got some swimmers in here, some pretty good swimmers, uh, people who've been on swim teams and done all sorts of things. Let's say that next week you decide you want to fly to Hawaii. We all want to fly to Hawaii, no doubt. But let's say you fly to Hawaii, three of you, and you decide that rather than flying back, you're going to swim from Hawaii to California. They're both states in the Union, so it can't be that far, can it? You're, you're, going, to, you're going to decide, the three of you, to swim from from Hawaii back to California. There, there's a little bit of a problem here. One of you is an absolutely great swimmer. One of you is kind of a so-so swimmer. One of you can't swim at all, but you're going to try. Well, the truth of the matter is you set out to try to swim from Hawaii to California, and the one who cannot swim at all, he, he wades out into the water and he flaps, uh, flap, uh, you know, flaps about a little bit, but as soon as he gets out over or she gets out to where it's over their head, they're going to drown. They're going to die. They're going to go maybe, what, 30 feet off the shore in Hawaii, and they die. They drown. The, the weak swimmer, the so-so swimmer, starts out, and, and he really starts out strong, or she starts out strong, and they're swimming, and they get about a hundred feet offshore, and they begin to tire, and they begin to flounder, and all of a sudden they drop, and they drown. They made it a hundred feet, where the other one only made it about twenty feet, but they drowned. But oh, the strong swimmer, the championship swimmer, the one who's won all sorts of medals, gets in the water, and he starts out, and he swims hard and hard as he can go. He's churning the water, and he's moving along, and he gets ten miles 20 miles, and 30 miles out. And he begins to tire. He begins to struggle. He begins to sink. And after 50 miles, he drowns. Now my question is, is one more drowned than the other? 
It's a legitimate question. One was a great swimmer, one was mediocre, one couldn't swim at all. The, the, the pagan can't swim at all. The pagan has no, no uh, honor for God whatsoever. They just pursue their own lust, their own pleasure, their own desires, and, and they drown. And, and the, the moralist is, is an adequate swimmer, and they start swimming, but their moralism doesn't get anything, doesn't get them to California, and they get out of ways, and they drown. And the championship, championship swimmer, the one who's won all the medals, and the one who swims the hardest and the longest, gets out 50 miles, but they drowned. Paul is basically saying that's what's taking place when you get when you look at man's condition. Some may look better. The, the, the Olympic swimmer looked a lot better than the person who couldn't swim at all. They, they looked better in the water. They looked smoother in the water. People looked at them and said, wow, look at them go. People do that about religionists all the time. But they needed a vessel to get them to California. And Paul is saying the only vessel that we have the only transport that we have is the Lord Jesus Christ. doesn't matter who swam the furthest. doesn't matter who's the most religious. You can't trust in your religion. You can't trust in your morality. You can't trust in your unrighteousness. Paul says, here's what I want you to see. Before I get to the good part that we would call the good part, before I get to the really good news, the good news that Jesus Christ came, he was God in the flesh, and he came and he dwelt among us, and he, he became like us, one of us, except without sin, and lived a sinless life, and then went to a cross and died in our place as our substitute in order that we might be justified by faith in him with God the Father, that we might be set on the vessel that gets us across the ocean before he gets to that good stuff about how we're adopted in the very family of God about how our sins were dark but now our sins are whiter our lives are whiter than snow because our sins have been not only forgiven they've been cleansed away by the work of Christ as our substitute before he gets to the part that how we are to live for his glory and everything that we're to do is to be to glorify him. And, and Paul in that Romans section of chapters 9, 10, and 11 where he just bursts forth in praise and says, thanks be to God, how can this great truth be understood and appreciated? Our, our puny minds can't comprehend it. Before he gets to all that, he says, if you're going to appreciate the fact that you are forgiven, if you're going to appreciate the fact that you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, if you're going to appreciate the fact fully that you are now adopted in the very family of God, if you're going to appreciate the fact that you have been called into this body we call the church and set apart for His glory, that, that you are now equipped to be able to live for His glory, that's going to happen. You're going to have to first understand the depth of your sin. People, you know, some people get upset with me all the time because 
because a, a small child will come and say, I, I, I'm ready to be baptized, or I'm ready to, uh, to, to trust Christ. And, I, and in their own way, they can trust Christ. I don't want to impugn that at all or say they can't do it. But they say, oh, we're ready to, we're ready to baptize them at four, five, six years of age, and I won't do it. And they get all upset because this child has said, I love Jesus. Well, yeah. This person said, this child has said, I believe in Jesus. I believe in God. Yeah, I understand that. But the truth of the matter is, they don't understand at five, four, five, or six, the depth of their sin. There's no way they can. Some of you haven't comprehended that yet. That, that your sin is against Almighty God. And, and you say, but I'm very moral. I, I, I'm really nice to people. And, and I'm very religious. I go to church every Sunday, you know, and I check it off. And I, I go out of here and it doesn't make any difference the rest of the week. But I'm, I'm in church. So I'm, I'm a religious person. And, and you don't understand, Paul is saying, that doesn't get you anywhere. It's only in Christ. The pagan, the moralist, the religionist are all in need of a Savior. They're all swimming, but they're all drowning. Some are swimming better than others, but nobody's swimming perfectly. We got one who swam it perfectly, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is Savior, who is Lord, who is more than just a religious figure. He is that, but he's far more than that. He's one who came to seek and to save those who couldn't swim at all and those who could swim 50 miles and those who drowned after 30 feet. He came to save them and give them life. And Paul is saying in this path, Paul is concentrating on that reality and throwing in there little things like in Back up in chapter 2, in verse 24, it says, you know, it's written in, in Ezekiel 36, the, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. In other words, you who are religious are not living what God has called you to live. And so the Gentiles blaspheme God as they look at you and say, well, I'm no, I'm no worse off than they are. They're, they go to church every Sunday. They're religious people. But hey, we live the same type of life. where he says the, the heart of the matter is this. One is a true Jew. One is really a, a, a son of Abraham who is not outwardly circumcised by physical means. But in verse 29 of chapter 2 says, but one who is inward, inwardly. And, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, a changed heart by the Spirit not by the letter, not by hands. His praise is not from man, but it is from God. Paul says, I want you to understand this. Verse 9, we, we've already charged, or you can say we've already shown through our argument in verses 1 through, uh, chapters 1 through 3, 9. We've already shown that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. And there's only one way out. There's only one way out from under that 
sin. It's not religion. It's not my good deeds. It's not my trying harder. He's going to show. I'm going to give you a little preview here. So I don't want you to be held now for five, seven weeks or so in suspense. He's going to say there's only one way out. That's through the person of Jesus Christ. Come to Him. Trust in Him. Believe in Him. Or as He will say later in this book, believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. The resurrection is important. Believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead and confess with your mouth that you believe in Jesus. No. Confess with your mouth that you believe He can save if He will or wants to? No. Believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead and confess with your mouth, not just that He's even Savior, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. He's Lord. He, even the Scriptures we've, we've read today in our hearing of the Word and, and our call to worship... He reigns as Lord. He is mighty as Lord. He, he is over all things. We sang, He sits on His throne in glory and rules and reigns over His world. Folks, we've allowed the church in the 21st century and even the 20th century, we've allowed the church to kind of shrink God down to be comfortable to us. And because we've done that, we, we who, even as the church, who've been given the very oracles of God, the very word of God, to speak truth out into our culture, we've kind of shrunk away from that because, you know, God's not that big in our estimation anyway. And we'll say He's big, we'll say He's powerful, we'll say He's, but in our own lives, rather than saying He is Lord, we kind of treat Him as though He's kind of weak. kind of weak. A friend of mine, Russell Moore, this past week tweeted something that I thought was significant. And it comes down to this whole thing about us having the Word of God, having the oracles of God, and speaking that truth to our culture. He, he just simply tweeted something like this, paraphrase. Christians, be prepared to be considered weird. Because if you're not prepared to be considered weird, you don't understand the gospel. If you're only prepared to be a Christian when everybody around me and everybody where I work and everybody where I live thinks, oh, that's a cool thing, then, then you're not prepared for the reality of what God is calling you to. We have, hear this, we have the very oracles of God, the very word of God. We have the very truth of God. And, and as Paul said here, let God be true, though everyone were a liar. Our culture is filled with liars. Sadly, more and more, our churches are filled with liars because they're saying the same thing that our culture is saying. But God's Word is true. I don't care if it's talking about his creative power. 
and his creating everything that there is, or whether it's talking about the only way is through Jesus Christ. And the only way is by confessing him as Lord. And everything in between, God is true. Our question's got to be this. Are we willing to speak the truth in love? Not in hate. Not in animosity. Not in cruelty. You know, I had one person tell me one time I was sharing with them and we got to the subject of hell and I, we talked about it and I pled with him about turning away and coming to Christ. And he said, you know, you sound like you really want me to. You, you sound like you're really concerned about it. I said, yeah, I am. He said, well, most everybody that's ever talked to me about that said, has told me I'm going to hell and they seem kind of glad that I am. Our hearts ought to weep over our lost neighbors, over our lost family members. Because if God is true, and just so you understand, He is, we're going to talk about that tonight in our, well, in my class. I can't say anything about it, though, because that'd be advertising. But, but I, I, you know, God is true. And there is no second chance after death. Are we willing to be considered as weird because we do not align with the spirit of this age? That's the question. That's the question to us as a church. It's the question to me as a pastor and our other pastors. But it's also a question to you as one who professes to follow Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we bow in your presence. 